This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got? Well, today we're going to talk about one of the most infamous aviation disasters ever. It happened right here in our home state of New Jersey. So we're looking at the older humanity, right? We're looking at the Hindenburg air disaster, which actually the anniversary is coming up. It happened on May, what, 6th? So the anniversary is coming up. It is coming up. Look at that. Uh, have you ever been to the actual site? I mean, it's close to, I mean, I wouldn't say close to our house. It's in a state, but our state's not large. I know where it was. I think I might have driven past or something. Else. I remember seeing like signs for it at one point, but I don't think I've never got out and like, was like oh, wow, here it yeah, is. Yeah, never done that either. And considering how big of a deal this was, I think that, you know, maybe we should since it's so close to our well, house. And we'll get to it. But one of the reasons why this is such a big deal was that there were so many film crews there and they captured it. So if you really look at it, was it, was it a disaster? Yes. Something that I, I knew about this, but I'm always shocked when you tell other people when we discuss it, is that not everyone died. Like people nope. think this thing blew up. Everyone must have been like, oh, hundreds of people died. And that wasn't true. You know, obviously it was, it was, it was a loss of life. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish that. But people actually survived. The, uh, there are only 35 um, fatalities. You see this massive yep. thing blowing up. But just seeing it and seeing the, and the newsreels coming out was a big deal. That's what it really was, the fact that everyone could, could see this happening. So you're not just reading about it, but you're, you're, it's the visual. Obviously, you see this later in the 1980s where you have the Challenger explosion, yep. like, things like that. People from our generation, I hate to bring it up, but we talk about like 9-11, see the towers come down. Like You see these horrible events happening. This is one of the first times that people were able to see these horrible events happening. Not yeah, and it was recorded. It happened, yeah, this was, it was it was recorded. There was and there yeah. was multiple news agencies there, so they were all yeah. talking about it. And even the radio, script, yeah. radio, yeah. yeah. So just kind of like a quick recap, and then we'll get into more specifics as we get going. But uh, it's May 6, as you mentioned, 1937, and the German Zeppelin Hindenburg, which at the time is considered, you and I talked about this before we click record, one of the largest. 804 aircraft. feet long. So it's, that's about three times the length of a Boeing 747. It's only, and it's a little small, about 80 feet smaller than the Titanic. So this thing was basically a flying, floating Titanic. Titanic. Yeah. Filled with hydrogen, which we'll get to. Yeah, which we'll get to. And why? Yep. So the Hindenburg explodes, right, over, um, fills the sky above Lakehurst, New Jersey. And what happens at that point is this massive airship just the tail first falls into the ground. You see the images of this. Uh, while its nose starts kind of projecting upwards and blowing smoke like a like a dragon, more or less. And then essentially what starts to happen is some of the passengers and crew members jump out a dozen feet in the air to safety while others burn, which is why... As we mentioned before, out of 97 people on board, that includes the crew, 62 survived. But at the time, the Hindenburg was supposed to be ushering this new age of airship travel. Like this was supposed to be the new big deal. And um, instead, this crash actually almost instantaneously brought the age to an abrupt end. And from this point forward, passenger airplanes became the number one means of travel. This more or less ended it. People were like, yeah, I don't want to be traveling with this massive flammable gas-filled balloon. And this was also, the, as you mentioned, the first massive technological disaster that was caught on film. And although there was no television yet in 1937, this was the reels of this were shown in movie theaters. And people were like, oh my gosh, like this is actually happening. And perhaps more... Scene. Yeah, perhaps more importantly, the radio itself, radio reporters recorded this. They're, they're kind of play by play as if you're watching a, a ball game. And then what ultimately happens, that gets shipped to radio stations right away. 
and it starts, you know, because gets like the life of its own, more or less. So it was like the Titanic. It was a Titanic in the air, and there's Nazis involved, and there's conspiracy theories involved, and there's obviously a disaster like the size of Titanic. There's a lot of cool things here too. There's a lot of things going on with this. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on. And like we were, like you were saying, like when he said Titanic, it's actually a good um, analogy because this was also like a luxury way to travel. So, oh my god, this was crazy! Did yeah, you read it, about it this? Was like like, this was... It was the fastest way to get across the Atlantic during this time. It was a much faster than the ocean liner, but they had the interior. Even nowadays, it's fancier than anything like airplanes have. I guess first class, not even first class, like private planes might have some of this stuff. Yeah. But they had they had meals in a, in a dining room. They had a fancy piano, a, a lounge. They slept in comfortable cabins. There was even a cigar um, shop and a smoking room on this, which I don't yes. understand how they would have that again. When they're with filling up with hydrogen, hydrogen and they're having a cigar yeah. thing, but they talk about this. There was a lot of like research that like things put in there. Like the ship itself was the material was not flammable, but it was still with flammable material. So yeah. and it and it was spark resistant. It just wasn't spark resistant enough, and it was kind of like a perfect. Literally, there what oh, we'll get into, I guess. But there was a storm going on when they tried to land in New Jersey. Yeah. And it was really the perfect storm with what what they did. Everything else that was going on, you mix that with the hydrogen, that was kind of leads to the uh, disaster. But this was not the ship. Actually, this was the ship's sixty-third flight. Like they, they it was, it, it was successful. It wasn't like it was a first voyage and it blows up. So this was. Yeah. Everyone thought this was like the next big technological thing. They were going to have these airships. The United States had these types of airships. Nowadays, you really just see these things at what, like the Goodyear blimp flying over. About like what Super Bowl and football games. Yeah, every time like when that. I was a little kid, and I would see that like flying, like you see along the New York skyline or above the Giants. Yeah, you see the, you see the blimps every now and then. Yeah, now you see yeah. small ones sometimes. I remember being a kid, like the turtle blimp was the one toy I always wanted that I never got. You know, the Ninja <laughs> Turtle blimp. I bet you that costs a lot of money right now. Probably yeah. they re-released a newer one. I remember seeing it, but they changed it. I was like, hey, you know what? Can't get it. <laughs> All these luxury cabins, you know, they're located within these two. I don't want to call them compartments because they're they're like the size of you know like I can't even compare it to it's like portions of a ship. There's two of these structures that are basically attached to the bottom of the balloon itself, and to those two structures, one on each end, they're not connected in the sense you could go between one another. There's like two different cabin sets, I guess. There to them you have the actual engines that are attached to them, and the engines determine the speed obviously while there's a weighing mechanism within the actual blimp itself where it includes some water as well based on what i was researching that would basically move and be able to shift the weight of the balloon to either the front or the back which would allow for it to descend you know and that's how they would wind up uh, you know ascending or descending using this like weird weight while the engines propeller engines that were connected to actual compartments, these humongous compartments that held all the cabins and everything else, that's what made it go forward. So, you know, it's you guys could obviously Google pictures of it, but more or less that kind of explains how that thing worked. Uh, Hindenburg it was actually named after the former German Weimar Republic president, Paul von Hindenburg. The construction of the Hindenburg started while the Nazis were getting into power. Even though it was not initiated by the Nazis and Adolf Hitler, it became it was yeah. created during by 37 Hitler. there in power, yeah. And this becomes the pride and joy of the Nazi party. This is the the mighty Germany in a sense because this is this is seen um as at the time the largest aircraft ever on in the world. Uh, it's super luxurious. There's nothing bigger than this. There's nothing more advanced than this. 
and it has a swastika on it. You know, this is like the number one advertisement for the Nazis of how great and powerful of a yeah. nation this is becoming in 1936 when we have to remember that, or 37 even, that the United States, as well as the rest of the world, is deep in a depression and the U.S. is about to hit a recession within a depression in 1938. So, you know, this is kind of like the calling card of the Nazis. Like, yes, look what we're yeah. doing. We and you can see pictures work. of this. Think about this is a massive, like over 800 foot giant silver floating, whatever you want to call Hot it. Hot air balloon, I guess. Sky, right? <laughs> in the sky with giant swastikas on it. Yeah. And you would yeah. see it's obviously, it means a little bit different connotations and it did we kind of know what's going to take place this is before the war this is in 37 but those feelings i mean the nazis are not hiding what they were in 37 either so people knew and that's one of the reasons why we'll talk about like i guess some sabotage or people think they could have been sabotage at first yeah or there was some talk of that because it was not some people didn't like that fact of what was going on with that no and the ship itself too technically when it was designed initially when it was designed it was supposed to be designed for helium and uh, we'll get to in a second why this one didn't have it but um it could either have helium hydrogen or hot air and as opposed to a hot air balloon where you continuously blow in hot air in it and then once you stop blowing a hot air the actual balloon deflates this doesn't it has a rigid frame that's constructed of these rings so the actual balloon, the blimp, I guess, stays in that same structure at all times. And within it, you have these special gas cells that are uh, kind of self-contained. And that makes sure that this blimp remains or rather maintains its shape without ever deflating like an air balloon. And there's 16 gas cells uh, that basically kept this Hindenburg up in the air. Now, they were designed initially to be filled with helium. And helium was already at the time known to be much safer than hydrogen because it was non-flammable, which makes sense, right? However, the Germans could not obtain helium. Um, it was extremely expensive. It was rare at the time, too. Super but rare. I believe most of the deposits were here in the United States. Yep, at or the, the Soviet I, Union. I, yeah, nowadays it's different. You can synthetically, I guess, make helium. Yep. Right? You can go to your party city, any store like that, right, and buy helium. You can buy helium tanks. But back in the 30s, that wasn't the case. So it was much more expensive and there was no way for them to really get it. And the Soviet Union and the United States definitely weren't going to give them. Exactly. The U.S. was like, yeah, we're not we're not selling this to the Nazis. Because they're Nazis. Yeah. And it was the same thing with the Soviet Union. They're like, well, that's just not happening. Yeah. Soviet Union really wasn't trading with anybody. Stalin wasn't even messing around with anybody at that time. Yeah, U.S. as you mentioned, U.S. actually was making more helium than like the whole world know. combined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they, and like, then just, we're just like, yeah, not selling that. I don't know what we were doing all that helium, but yeah, right. We were, I mean, it's not like they were blowing like birthday balloons. I, I don't no, know. They were having like some cotton, you know, yeah, clown <laughs> parties and stuff like that. All right, so let's get into the actual crash, and then we'll talk about some uh, you know possibilities of what might have happened, or at least what people believe happened, and to finish up with some fun facts. Basically, there's a few things going on with this disaster. Yeah, it had it started its last flight May third, right, nineteen thirty seven. It had thirty six passengers, sixty one office officers and crew members and trainees. Like we said before, it was just, it was its sixty third flight. So it's just coming across the Atlantic, and it finally gets to the United States uh, by noon May sixth. They're kind of, they're behind schedule, and the pilots really just wanted to get it done. They they wanted to, it was becoming a big big deal that people were waiting for the Hindenburg to land because again, this thing is a huge airship. It's the largest airship that was ever made. As they're coming down, it's a, it's also bad weather. So it's a storm yep. going on. It's misty. It's raining. There's a thunderstorm. You really don't want a thunderstorm with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason they're saying it's sketchy. But so also they did something called a high landing. Basically to bring these ships in, 
they would basically drop cables down yeah. and the ground crew would come and grab these t- cables and then tie them up. And then the propellers would like slow down and almost like they would almost slowly pull this thing. They'll pull it down. Like, yeah. yeah. It's not like it doesn't, it doesn't pulleys. land. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't land like airplanes or it doesn't just like hover and stop. Yeah. You have to have people actually like tie it to the ground and stuff like that. That just seems so unsafe. Doesn't that seem so unsafe? Well, they said it's it's definitely unsafe. It was yeah. always They tied it to dangerous. pulleys, right? I think they tied it to they some pulley systems. Yep. And coming down, what's called this high landing, is they dropped it even when the when the when the blimp was much higher in the air. The low landing is what is normally recommended, and what they would normally do during a storm is it would come even lower. It would come much lower before they dropped off. Uh, this altitude, they, they said they started dropping at about 600, 400 feet. They started dropping the lines, yep. and these things are just flying all over the place. And there's a couple of theories is that if one they grounded the and created static electricity, another is these cables just kind of hit each other. And if there was any sort of um, hydrogen leak, that's what's going to spark the um, the flame yep. pretty much instantly. This is going to spread throughout the ship. So as they're doing that, that's basically what happened. And this ring of fire basically starts just taking over the ship. And the ship burns in um, 32 seconds. So that just yeah. shows you how fast this is. There must have been some sort of um, leak somewhere. They believe it has to be something. That gas must have been escaping. And the ground crew and everyone, they try to do it. But within 32 seconds... The whole thing's engulfed in flame. Yeah, NASA did a, a study later, an analysis. You know, they got these NASA guys that obviously know what they're doing. And they looked at the spread rate of the flame itself, of how quickly it burnt. I mean, it was like 49 feet per second. <laughs> it was like yeah. one, boom, 49 feet just burnt. Like it was, it literally spread like crazy. So people that are watching this, once that fire sets in the back, within 32 seconds, the thing's down on the ground. Like that's... You know, people are watching this like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Meanwhile, there's still cables of people holding on to them down at the bottom. And the reason we have some survivors, because as I mentioned before, some people just jump out of this thing. They're like, forget it. I'm either going to burn alive or, or I'm going to have, you know, a broken leg. I'm taking a broken leg. Well, yeah, most of the people were by the windows. They survived because they jumped out. And since they were landing, just like anything else, you want to see, watch the landing, watch the ship come down. So they just jumped out as they saw the fire spread. They said it really depended where you were on the, on the ship. If you were on the opposite side of where it was, you get out. But when a lot of the crew members, they're mostly the ones who died. They were the ones like within that, inside, were stuck, yeah. that were stuck inside the ship. There was one that actually, he, he passed out from the heat. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I was reading about, but then like a um, fire extinguisher kicked on, like a water bucket dumped on him. That's basically what it was back then. Hmm. And it woke him up and he was able to get out like right before no. it crashed. Never know. And, you know, the reason this is like, it starts at like, it's just 7 p.m. After 7 p.m. It's getting dark. Like I said, the weather is terrible. Um, and they were really, the weather was so bad, as you kind of alluded to, Tom, that this ship, they kept on being redirected. Every time it got close to New Jersey, they were told, not yet. So then they, he basically, the pilot is like, all right, well, I guess we'll go check out like New York City. And that's one reason why they kind of rushed the landing when they did get there. They just dropped these lines because they're finally, they just want to get it done. They were, they were tired. They were yeah. done. That was it. Because it was such a big deal, there was actually tours allowed for, as the actual Zeppelin was on the ground. Like, so while passengers got out and before new passengers got on, there's a lot of people on that field that bought tickets to be able to board 
the famous Zeppelin Hindenburg, which was actually called off because of how much time this was. So the, the captain called it off. It's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. We're going to go in, get what we need, get this prepped for our next trip. And the reason why there were so many people there is, what, as you mentioned before, Tom, the press that was there is because I believe this was the first transatlantic flight of that year for the Hindenburg, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was, it was the like the one, one yeah. chance you're going to see it. You don't know if you're going to see it for another year or whatever. It was normally so. it was just flying around Europe, cr- crossing yeah. the Atlantic. And again, it did the Atlantic very fast. We're saying it, it crossed the Atlantic in three days. No yeah. one today is going to, you know, I guess ocean liners do, right? They aren't, they yeah. take time. But like if you're going to go to Europe, you're not waiting. Three you're days flying, for, yeah. You're flying eight hours, plane going over. But yeah. this was like luxury travel. It was the fastest you could do it. Three days. Oh my god, I can get from Europe to North America in three days. This is crazy. And you know, it just shows you how technology, wait to what it's going to be in 20 more years, right? But right. the idea is that this is like the pinnacle of technology at the yeah. time. The irony of the whole thing, too, is that once it burned to the ground, all that steel was brought back, shipped back to Germany, recycled and used to construct aircraft for the German Luftwaffe that bombed allies in Europe in World War II just a couple short, you know, two years after this, really. Days after the disaster, you have an official board of inquiry set up in Lakehurst, New Jersey. It is, And the Germans do their own investigation also. They do. I'm sorry to interrupt yep. you. Talk of sabotage, although they've never been able to prove that there was any sort of sabotage yep. whatsoever. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too that when I started reading this, so Hitler apparently gets the news about this while he's on this like mountaintop retreat, and they said that his reaction was just he was just stunned silence. So he was like, "Uh, what?" Because this was the biggest at the time. You know, you, you're talking around since the Titanic. This is like the uh, the next big disaster. A German airship pioneer and the head of the company that built the Hindenburg itself first acknowledged the possibility of sabotage. And this was kind of acknowledged by a lot of newspapers initially, just with like within one day. And then the Germans started backtracking and they were like, hmm. So Hermann Goering, who's the basically the head of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, uh, dismissed any forms of sabotage and called the disaster an act of God, like we bow to God's will. And at the same time, we face the future with an unbending will and passionate hearts to continue the work for the conquest of the air. And the Nazis were very quick to backtrack on the idea of sabotage. There was a book that came out in 2021 yeah. called The Empires of the Sky. And basically, the, the author is trying to say that, you know, if this was sabotage, that would show that Hitler was not universally loved. And that is clearly not the message that the Nazis were trying to spread, just having come to power. So they're like, wait, this isn't sabotage. People love us. Everyone loves us. We have no enemies. So it might have been sabotage, but the Germans themselves were like, no, 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 definitely not, definitely not, definitely not. Which is kind I of saw there was even a theory that Hitler ordered the Hindenburg to be destroyed because one of the um, architects or the people in the company that ran by the name of um, Ecker was actually, he had some anti-Nazi opinions, you know, before the Nazis came to power. So that Hitler, you know, ordered it to be destroyed. But again, that's the Nazis were about propaganda and showing themselves what they were. They're not going to destroy their pride, joy, airship just because of someone saying a few yeah. things. They'll kill the guy, but they're not going to destroy the airship. Yeah. You know? uh, and there's so many things flying around the newspapers at the time uh, of the Hindenburg because it seems so unbelievable. I mean, many people suggest that it was like definitely a, there's an anti-Nazi element that's responsible, right? So people said it was maybe the communists. It was anti-Nazi Germans that were upset to, to the new takeover, essentially, in government in Germany. And some people thought it was the Jews. Um some people thought it was the Spaniards that were angered by Germany's support of the fascist leader, Francisco Franco, right? Then, like you said, some people thought it was an inside job, right, by the Nazis. And there was even a, a thing, the newspaper, one newspaper in New Jersey stated that it might have been the Germans themselves that blew up the Hindenburg because they wanted insurance money. 
then there was the FBI exam because the FBI starts helping out, right? It's not their official case, but it started helping out as well because this is such a big deal. One theory was that there was like an incendiary, yeah, bullet being fired from the ground. Someone said that this guy fired his bullet with fire from this one spot and the FBI actually wound up looking at some footprints and found that there was nothing there. One theory suggested it was an actual airplane above the Hindenburg and it shot down at the gas, the flammable gas from above. Some people said it was uh, shot down by New York City police. I mean, there's a lot. Of, like, if you start researching the newspapers from the time, people were just like, all right, like something crazy had to have happened to bring this down. But there is definitely, or rather, there are definitely some more believable conspiracy theories that this was sabotage. Two different men, right? I don't know if you caught the same thing, but I caught it was two men that supposedly might have done this. One was a pastor named Joseph Spa, S-P-A-H. He was yeah, like a Spa, German yeah, he had, acrobat. He, he had um, communist beliefs, right? And yep. anti-Nazi connections. Yep. I did see a little bit about him, yeah. Yeah, so he brought a dog. So apparently he's like a German acrobat that is of, of like openly anti-Nazi. And he brought a dog with him, a German shepherd that was named Ula. And this was supposed to be a surprise for his children in the United States. And he had this dog stay uh, in a different compartment that was not near people. And apparently this guy being an acrobat, kind of wires and whatnot, they said that he kept on going to visit and feed this dog over and over and over and over again during those three days. And he was in a freight room nearly all the time by the stern of the ship. So that was the first suspicion that because this guy was in an area where based on his acrobatic skills, he could also get somewhere dangerous that he might have somehow during these trips to feed his dog gotten into the ship's interior and maybe done something to it, especially since he was openly very anti-Nazi. And, and even during this trip, he would get in conversations with people and when he would belittle Nazis and make jokes about Nazis. So that was one particular um, theory that he p- supposedly like got in there and rigged a, a bomb. Then there was another theory that came out in 1962, and that one dealt with a crew member, Eric Spiel, Spiel, I think. And he wound up not surviving this one. So he, this guy is part of the crew itself, but it's potentially a saboteur. There's a lot of things going on here. One, a huge anti-Nazi connection. The fire's origin, because of where it started towards the back, they believe was near this catwalk running through gas cell four. And that was the area that it was off limits to anyone except the Spiel guy. There's even paperwork that the Gestapo investigated Spiel afterwards, even during that time, like 1937, 38, because of the fact that he was so anti-Nazi. He was near the area where it supposedly started. And he was also an amateur photographer. It was very familiar with flashbulbs, which at the time had an igniter in them. So the guy was pretty decent with, you know, being able Powder, to ignite yeah, things. Yeah. Those are the main two... That, yeah, they were um, both investigated by the FBI and yeah. by the Germans, and they kind of couldn't really prove anything. And they said the one guy died, so they couldn't really investigate him, but they kind of couldn't find that really connected him to him. And then the other guy, he didn't even know he was a suspect until years later. Yep. When I guess he heard about it, and he was kind of off put by saying, well, what are you talking about? Like, I had nothing to do with this. They couldn't really prove that he did. There was no real connection. And there, most people say he wasn't the type of person that would want to do that and actually have people die. Maybe sabotaged a plane. I mean, the Zeppelin forever taking off might be one thing. Yeah, they could see him, but not not that would cause innocent people to die just because of it. You know, like Hitler wasn't aboard the Zeppelin. Yeah, do you have any other theories, or like we could get into like what? Well, most of the other theories were basically static shock, right? Static electricity, yep. static shock. 
Um, lightning, there's always the idea that I actually did get hit by lightning, but they definitely know that it was something, electricity in the air, like a charged air. Yeah. Um, they talked about St. Elmo's fire, which I think is something we talked about another time here, right? We did. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the idea of St. Elmo's fire, that, that could have ignited it. But basically, when you're Weather. flying a, a 800 foot ball of hydrogen, Highly bad flammable. things can happen. And these things have happened before. That's one other thing that I guess we have to make sure that we touch on is that even the helium air balloons were dangerous. There was a lot of these accident-prone Zeppelins prior to the Hindenburg disaster. You had two of them just a couple of years before. They had USS Akron, which 73 of 75 people died. And that was hot. That was helium-powered. They crashed at sea. You had the British, um, a British, the R-101, when 48 people were killed because it just crashed because it was dark out. But none of these had witnesses or cameras around. And that was the big difference here because millions of people saw this on film. And then that's what's kind of like led to the end of this form of air travel. Basically that and the fact that better technology was on its way. There was also the idea that during the flight itself, there was something that went wrong with like a, a fuel pump. And it's sort of emitting out the hydrogen, yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of emitting, but also gas, diesel gas. It's sort of emitting diesel gas into the air. And there is a lot of statements from people that were on the ground that they said they smelled diesel gas. They smelled gasoline. Even people that were on the ship, they said they still smelled gasoline. But even though the actual pump was fixed and there was no leak in gasoline, they said that just the sheer fact that it was still in the air, the gases of that gasoline, I guess, could easily ignite. If you have any form of atmospheric, you know, electricity that could be caused by like a brush discharge or even the wires themselves getting electrified or at some form of a um, lightning strike. I mean, again, it was pouring rain. Well, they said it could also have been the different the, the electromagnetism ever in the air compared to what was in the ground. It was like polarizing the cables uh, and then it polarized the air that was around the ship at different levels. And that could cause a spark. Any spark that it happened inside the ship was going to ignite the hydrogen. Like yeah. hydrogen is just, just going to, that's going to go up regardless. Like yeah. You have to understand how flammable hydrogen is. I was reading, Kim, reading about this. He said the Germans put a lot of safeguards in, but no matter what they did, you couldn't have all the safeguards in. And a lot of safeguards that were put in were also ignored. So that's something yeah. to remember too. Nuts. You had pilot fatigue and everything. Like this was a disaster waiting to happen. And it was a perfect storm, literally and figuratively, that caused it to happen. And we could pretty much say that today, the consensus is that this really was an accident. This was not an act of sabotage. Uh, the disaster itself was a freak accident um, that basically all but ended the era of Zeppelins uh, before it really even commenced. What essentially happens here, like I mentioned before, the Zeppelin is scrapped. Uh, the scraps are brought back to Germany. Um, and believe it or not, even if they wanted to build more Zeppelins, because in World War One, the Zeppelins proved themselves as, as pretty favorable ships to drop bombs from. Uh, within the, by like they say 1942, early 1942, Britain actually bombed the production fields and factories that built the Zeppelins in Germany. So from 1942 forward, they could never really build them again. Uh, and again, this is only four years after this event. And then they never really rebuilt them after World War Two. By then, air travel had become you know, way above and beyond anything that anyone ever expected it to be. But do um, you have any fun facts to finish this off with? Well, I don't want to say fun facts. One thing I thought that was kind of interesting is because it was so fast, it was also used as a mail carrier. Mm -hmm. In three days, gets the stuff over. So it had over 17,000 pieces of mail. Obviously, most of the mail was destroyed. They said about 176 pieces survived because they were stored in a protective um, container. 
They're postmarked four days after the ship was destroyed. So it's highly, highly valuable um, among collectors who like collect this sort of stuff. So it's some of the most valuable, I guess, that era, 1930s, you want to call it World War II era collectibles basically out there is these 176 pieces that they know survived the Hindenburg. Another fact that I saw that was interesting is that a lot of people, when you, because you could hear the radio broadcast and the guy's like super intense uh, describing what's happening. That was not actually live. That was recorded. Um, I alluded to that before, and it was later played on various radio stations around the world. But everyone thought they were listening to it live, but they were not. It was a recording. How much do you think it cost to ride the Hindenburg? Oh, I don't know. That's then. a good question. So originally, the one-way ticket, a one-way ticket was $400, which is, I think, good money in the 1930s, right? Yeah. Um, you can, I mean, so you went, can fly to Florida for that much today. So like, that's yeah. a lot of money. So it went up to 450 in 1937. But they had actually other – that was for the first-class passenger – you could also get like other ones, like the third class passenger was only $82 to travel on the Hindenburg. Again, I don't know what the deal. You weren't, you weren't dining in that fancy ballroom. You weren't hidden at the fancy cabin. You probably didn't have access to the smoking lounge. <laughs> but that was basically, it ranged from 450 to $82 to ride the Hindenburg. You know, it's interesting. You talk about the lounge. Uh, the piano in that lounge, uh, because of the very strict weight standards, the piano was made mostly out of aluminum alloy and covered in yellow pig skin so that way this grand baby you know baby grand piano really weighed less than 400 pounds which is unheard of for for a piano that size Uh, but it was it was actually on board during the actual disaster yeah you can also see the hidden whether you can in footage you can see the hindenburg at the 1936 olympic games that's also when it was like it traveled around you know taking pictures over berlin and stuff like that yeah over the summer olympic games that we've talked about on a previous podcast that's right and kind of going along with that, the Hindenburg was for, like when it was developed, its first mission was really for the Nazi regime. So Nazi propaganda minister ordered the Hindenburg to make its first public flight in March 1936. That was the first official public flight as part of a joint 4,100 mile aerial tour of Germany with another Zeppelin, the Graf Zeppelin. So the two Zeppelins went around Germany, basically rallying support for the referendum that ratified the reoccupation of the Rhineland. It was the first Hitler's first real move, military move, in, in trying to gain land or repossess land that Germany lost during World War One. Uh, so for four days, the airships went together and just blared patriotic tunes through from huge speakers and pro-Hitler announcements from specially mounted like loudspeakers, and. Um, it also had these small parachutes that were let out of it with propaganda leaflets and swastika flags were dropped all over German cities. Um, the actual referendum to bring back this area of Germany, whether by force or not, it was approved by 98.8% of Germans. Um, it's kind of interesting. And then after that, as you mentioned in 36, it was prominently figured in a sporting um, Olympics event, which is kind of crazy. I mean, I think pretty sure it actually... Um, it had they they painted Olympic rings on the side of the Hindenburg, yeah, right, yep, and pulled like a large flag behind it. Yep, so crazy. Anyway, and the other I thing, I guess there isn't um the tie it off. There is a memorial at the actual site in um, Lake Hurst today. We're gonna go it's check it out, like- Tom. We're gonna you and I are gonna stand there. We'll bring some kids because we always need, looking for something to do with kids in the summer, and we'll take pictures. Oh yeah, we're we'll gonna take our, our little kids and be like, here, this is a uh, horrible air disaster." Yeah, and they'll uh, be like, can I, yeah, my, 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 can I have juice? My, my, my wife is going to love me bringing the, bringing the kids to that one. It's going to be great. But, um, 
The hangar that it was supposed to be housed in actually is, was designated a national landmark in 1968. Um, 68? Oh, 68. Well, yeah. 68 is when they um, made a national landmark. 87, they dedicated a actual, like, kind of an outline yeah. of where, of where, where the chains were. And yeah. that's, that was marking the 50th anniversary in 87. And um, you, can, you, you can go there. You guys just have to pre-register the tours through the, through the uh, Navy Re- um, Historical Society. So you have some pulls in historical societies. Pete, you can get us in. No, of course. I can make that work. Well, I know there's a new show on History Channel. I don't even um, plug it. I know they did a – it's called I Was There. They kind of use computer graphics, and they put this guy, the host, like at the actual event as it happens. They did like Lincoln's assassination. And the first episode, I believe, was though the Hindenburg disaster. He was like there as it happened. You could like, and they kind of show all these different angles because in 2021 they actually some new footage from an amateur uh, photographer who was there filming it from underneath Hindenburg. He it's the first. It's the only images we have of Hindenburg before it started to catch fire. All the other wow. ones I have like it's already on. This one is from underneath, and you actually can see the fire starting in like the rings. As it goes, and that's like new footage that was only recently. Apparently, it always was around. It was only recently rediscovered, and that's where a lot of these like National Geographic and some of these other agencies were like, you know, re-examining the footage because of that. And they really think it had to be some sort of fuel leak and a spark with the polarization that is what created the, the fire. All right, now and last thing to finish us off with Eckner, who was the actual creator and the guy that financed and owned the company that owned. The Hindenburg had a request by Goebbels uh, to name it after Adolf Hitler. It was actually supposed to be Adolf Hitler. And he, Eckner, was so very much against, openly against the Third Reich, that he, as a diss to Hitler, named it for his predecessor, the president of the Weimar Republic, Paul von Hindenburg, refusing to name it Adolf Hitler. So this was supposed to be. Wait, this would not be called the Hindenburg disaster. It would have been called the Adolf Hitler disaster. He has his own disasters. Well, yeah, that's right. We did a podcast on that, too. Anyway, I think that concludes our podcast on the Hindenburg disaster. Um, You guys can find us on www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you have any questions or if you want to just shoot us an email, please feel free to do so. We do appreciate them. Also, click the subscribe button, whatever you listen to this podcast, and please feel free to leave us a review. We we definitely appreciate those. So thank you very much, guys, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute. 
and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.